I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. I don't officially know, I don't know if this is an official period of time, but I would say that we're in the dog days of summer, aren't we? And that when you're pastor, you learn that there are moods in the church, and this is a dog days mood, I can tell in the church. Uh, things are slightly subdued uh, compared to what they normally are. There's another time of the year that that happens, and that's that's when it begins to get cold and, and the days are shorter, somewhere around November. And they're just the, the moods are, are up and down in, in churches. And very interesting. But we're in the dog days of summer, right? But I tell you what, uh, my heart is, is full just studying uh, Exodus. It's, it's just been a wonderful study. Exodus chapter 11. I just want to remind you that what, what we are doing with Exodus, we are covering the, the major themes that are continued all the way through Scripture in the book of Exodus. We're not looking at all the details. We'd be in here about two years. Um, but we're looking at the major themes. There's great stuff I'm passing over in order, get the pun, passing over, okay, passing by, in order to, to go along with the major themes of Scripture. And so Exodus chapter 11 is where we're going to begin. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we begin reading this passage of scripture, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Just, I want to pause there. As you read this, notice the absolute sovereignty of God. He told them what they're going to do. Then he gives them favor, right? Let's continue reading. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. And I'm going to talk about that. Why is that phrase important? That's going to be interesting. Okay. Either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his land. Our Heavenly Father, what a serious, sobering passage is before us, and yet at the same time, we are awestruck by everything that you do and the way that you weave 
everything together, Lord, for your own glory is just astounding. I pray that you will fix in our hearts the importance of the Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, the first only begotten of of the Lord, of the Father, Lord. And I pray that um, you will warm our hearts, that you will kindle a flame in our hearts, Lord, to glorify you and praise you. And also, Lord, that you will renew us in our desire to be sanctified and holy before such a God as thee. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Stories and experiences uh, shape our lives, don't they? We all, we all have experiences that we will never forget. We all have experiences that are formative, don't we? I remember some of those from my growing up years, and then others that I don't remember, I realize over time these were formative experiences. Think of that person that went through the depression. What do they do? They hide their money under the mattress. They don't trust banks. They, 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 most of them are probably uh, dead or in nursing homes by now, but they, they also, what did they do? They kept stuff because it was such a formative experience, wasn't it? Uh, I'm from the, uh, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, so my thing that I remember are the, the rock bands who are trying to relive the gr- glory years, Right? And you see these old wrinkled guys up on the platform trying to do what they could do in their 20s, and it just doesn't go over very well. But those are formative experiences for them. We all have formative experiences. And in the journey through Exodus, the Passover is the most formative story in history. It literally formed uh, Israel as a nation. In the story of the Passover... We see God's redemptive power, don't we? We see also in in one act, his mercy and his justice. We see uh, his promises kept in the Passover as well. It was so formative that God called the Israelites to remember his saving power. Look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 13. In verse number 3, we'll come back to this, but I want to show it to you right now. Then Moses said to the people, what? What does he say? Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Right? Do you remember the day that you were brought out of the house of slavery to sin? Do you remember the day that God redeemed you with a strong arm and great power out of this world and out of the kingdom of darkness and into his heavenly kingdom? Wasn't that a wonderful day? It was, wasn't it? And so for hundreds of years, actually 400 years, the Israelites had been enslaved. They, They knew that God promised Abraham that one day they would inherit the promised land. But God seemed silent, 400 years of silence. By the way, there was another 400-year period of silence, wasn't there? At the end of the Old Testament until Jesus Christ, well, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ burst onto the scene. 
They knew what God had promised. And then all of a sudden, this guy Moses showed up with a promise of redemption and liberty. And they were excited, and the Bible says that they worshiped the Lord, but there's a problem. The message didn't go over so well with Pharaoh, and their, their enslavement got worse before it got better. Finally, God began to act plague after plague after plague. And a normal person, you would think, would look at those plagues and say, you know what, I'm going to let these people go. But Pharaoh didn't do that. By the way, I want to stick a note in here as well. When Israel left, the message of salvation was for all the people. And the Egyptians knew that everything that happened to them was by the power of God. Now, you would think that they wanted to follow that kind of a God. But the Bible indicates that not very many Egyptians went with the Israelites when they left, did they? They just wanted them gone. Why is that, do you think? I'm not going to answer that question now. I want you to think about that, and maybe we'll get back to it today. If not, email me, okay? But I want you to think, why would they not leave with Israel? What was going on? Why would they not leave with Israel? And so now we get to Exodus chapter 11, and God said, yet one plague more will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterwards, he's going to let you go. And he's going to drive you away. Now, what's interesting about this verse in chapter 11 is that this is actually the first time the word plague is used. The word plague is not used before this verse right here. The signs, wonders was used, but not the word plague. What does the word plague mean? The word means to strike or to strike a blow. And so God said, I have struck nine blows on Pharaoh, and I've got one more blow that I'm going to strike, and this blow will cause him to let you go. And what we learn from these plagues, and this plague particularly, is that the Lord is the Lord of life and death. So look at verse number four with me. About midnight, I will go out into the midst of, of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the, uh, the cattle, death is coming to the Egyptians, but not to the Israelites. The Lord is the Lord of life and death. And guess what? He's still the Lord of life and death today, isn't he? All aspects of life. Death is coming to all. And we don't know when. And I want to remind you something that we all know, but we need to be reminded of it. You cannot extend your life by one more day. Eating healthy does not make you live longer. I hate to tell you this. It does not make you live longer. Now, it may make you more healthy while you live. But it doesn't make you live longer because the Bible repeatedly says what? God ordains our days. And we live as long as we need to live in order to please him. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, I, now I'm not telling you to go out and eat a gallon of ice cream after this service. I'm just reminding you of a, truth, a universal truth. Although, if you want ice cream, let me know. I'll go with you. So... <laughs> Let's go to verse number 7. Isn't it curious what the Lord said there? He said, not a dog will growl against any of the people or, or man or beast. What's the deal with dogs? Why, why in all of this does he mention a dog? 
Well, the answer to that question is, is very fascinating. The Egyptian god of the underworld was Anubis. And he came in either a canine form, you see sometimes in Egypt, and other times it's a human with a dog's head. And this, this particular god assisted people during their passage through the afterlife. And all kinds, I don't want to say hundreds, it could be hundreds, could be hundreds of statues of Anubis have been found in Egypt, all over. Every tomb had multiplied statues or, or carvings, like this relief carving that's on the screen, of, of Anubis. Because he was the one who gave people safe passage through the underworld and, and controlled that. He had the power. But by, by saying this, what God is telling Egypt and Israel is, look, Anubis has no power over life and death. I, the Lord, have power over life and death. The salvation of the Israelites proves that God has power over life and the death of the Egyptians. The Egyptian sons will prove that Israel's God has the power over life and death. Now, verse number 10 summarizes the encounter. Look at this. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of his hands. Now, all these plagues were part of God's plan to reveal his glory in salvation of his people. We, we mentioned this last week. He, he told Egypt, look, I could just kill you all and let Israel come out. But I don't want to do that. I want these plagues so that I display my glory to you as well. And so even Pharaoh's opposition was part of the plan. Each time he hardened his heart, God performed another miracle so as to multiply and multiply and multiply his wonders all for his own glory. Now we get to chapter number 12. And chapter number 12 is the first Passover. Look at verse number 1. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you a beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year. I'm going to stop right there. We're going to continue reading this passage. But this is important. Their year started, uh, uh, coincided with the salvation of, of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. It's significant that their year starts. By the way, that's, that's April, March, April time frame every year. Uh, verse number three, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth of the month, every man shall make, take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall uh, make your uh, count for a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, this lamb lived in the house with them for four days. Okay, next verse. And you shall keep it, I'm sorry, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which uh, they, shall, they shall eat it. Do not eat of it raw or boiled. I'm sorry, I, I am, I'm looking to see if the screen matches. 
and I'm messing myself up. I'm going to restart verse number 7, okay? Then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff on your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You know, say eat in haste. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. But immediately we learn a giant uh, truth, biblical truth that we need to understand and every person in the world needs to understand and that has to do with the wages of sin. Immediately we learn this truth, the wages of sin is death, isn't it? The Israelites, think about this with the Israelites. All the plagues prior, God made a distinction, didn't he? He made a distinction. Hell fell on Egypt, but not on Goshen where the Israelites were. And all of a sudden now, God tells them, death is going to visit you as well. They had to be shocked to discover that their lives were in danger. All the previous plagues left them unscathed because God made a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. And this had to tempt them. Think, think with me. Put yourself in their shoes. This had to tempt them to believe that they were more righteous than the Egyptians, wouldn't it? Look at us. We're, we're, God likes us better than the Egyptians. We're, we're better than the Egyptians. Or they were tempted to believe that they could do no wrong. But the truth is that they deserve to die every bit as much as the Egyptians. In fact, if God had not provided a means for their salvation, they would have suffered loss of every last one of their firstborn. The Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians, and in the final plague, God taught them about their sin and his salvation. You think that, that's a very important lesson to learn, isn't it? The reason that the avenging angel visited the Israelites was, like the Egyptians, they were sinners, and sin, get this, sin is a capital offense. The proper penalty for it is death, and it has always been that way. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. When God planted Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Bible explains it this way. Death came to all men. Why? Because all sinned. The Bible says that we are all sinners. Every single one of us deserves to die an eternal death. 
we tend to think of ourselves as pretty good people. And God tends to look at us, he does look at us and say, you are sinful people, you deserve death. The tenth plague was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity. You go out these doors, you get in your car, and you drive into Culpeper, you drive to Warrington or Fredericksburg or Madison or wherever you go today, and you see all the people who did not bother to worship God today, and they're, they're loving summer, and they're going to the festivals, and they're eating ice cream, and they're going out to eat, and they're doing all these wonderful things, and life is good for them, and they do not realize that they are under the penalty of death because they did not glorify God as they should, and they have sinned against the Almighty God. That's the most important message that we could ever give to someone, isn't it? The reality is that every individual must face the fact that we have sinned, every single one of us. And if death has come to all people, then we too can expect to die. It's as simple as that. We will never see our need of salvation until we see the, the, the fact that we are just as guilty as everyone else. And therefore, our lives are forfeit to God. It's a sobering, serious truth. But there's another wonderful truth in the Passover, and that is this. There is the Lamb of God. In His great mercy, God provided a way for His people to be safe. His people. If you have trusted the Lamb of God, dear believer, today you are His people. And He provided a way for you to be safe from that penalty of eternal death. Isn't that wonderful? The reason he visited the Israelites' homes was not to destroy them, but to teach them about salvation. Like the Egyptians, the Israelites deserved divine judgment. But unlike the Egyptians, they would be saved by grace through faith. Each household was to choose its own lamb, specifically a yearling, without blemish. It had to be perfect. The lamb was destined to serve as a sacrifice for sin, and the only sacrifice acceptable to God is a perfect sacrifice. And so the lamb had to be pure and spotless, whole and sound. Once the lamb was chosen, it was kept in the house for four days, during which time the family fed it, the family cared for it, and the, the children played with it. And in that short time, you know what they would have done? They would have identified with that lamb. They would have identified with that lamb. And so it almost became part of the family. And what God required for salvation was the offering of the lamb. And this is what he has always required. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible doesn't specifically say he sacrificed a lamb, but they were given skins of a lamb, weren't they? Symbolic of, of uh, the sacrifice that was made. Um, you find then later on uh, in Scripture it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, 
So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Already, we see that in Genesis chapter 4, Abel was the one who brought the lamb. And only his offering was accepted because only a lamb atones for the sin. We, we can, can continue in the book of Genesis. Later on, you find that in the days of Abraham, God told Abraham to go up to sacrifice his only son Isaac on a, as a burnt offering. As the two of them headed towards Mount Moriah, by the way, in case you're wondering, the, the temple, Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies, was on the spot where Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Mount Moriah is where they were headed. And Isaac, obviously he's no dummy. He looks at his dad and says, something's missing. He says, my father. And he said, here am I, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knew what God required. God required a lamb, and Abraham knew it too. And his faithful answer revealed the plan of salvation. He said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And he did, didn't he? And he provided that lamb for the sins of the whole world, you and I. Don't we serve a wonderful God? Finally, the day came. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God was planning this all along. One lamb to die for one world. By his grace, he has provided a lamb. You get all the way to the book of Revelation. And he's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The consistent message of the Bible is, that anyone who wants to meet God must come on the basis of the lamb that he has provided. All other lambs, millions of lambs, prepare for the coming of Christ. For Jesus to be our Passover lamb, he had to meet God's standard of perfection. Back during the Exodus, the lamb had to be perfect physically. But Jesus' case, the perfection was moral perfection, wasn't it? Morally perfect lamb. Let me ask you something. Have you trusted in that lamb for your salvation? Have you? It's the most important question you can answer today. Have you trusted that lamb for your salvation? There's another thing that the Passover teaches us, and that is this. That it's only by the spilling of blood. Go to Exodus chapter 12. You find that blood is all over Exodus. Verse number 13 once the lamb was sacrificed, they were to take its lamb and paint it on the door frames. This was obviously essential because God said, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now what's going on here? When God came to the home of an Israelite, he saw the blood on the door. And when he looked at it, he in effect said, Someone died in this house. The penalty has been executed. You see what's going on? The penalty has been executed. The technical term, by the way, I'm going to throw some theological theology at you if you don't mind. The technical term is propitiation. The propitiation turned away the wrath of God. And so 
the doorpost put blood between God and the sinner. And so when the people looked up and saw that blood, what they saw was expiation. They saw the covering for their sin. Then God looked down and he saw that they made a propitiation. Thus, his wrath was turned aside. I am so glad that Christ turned away the awesome wrath of God. You look at the plagues in Genesis, the, or Exodus, the, the, the wrath of God displayed there in Egypt. Same, by the way, same thing you see in the book of Revelation. You see the awesome wrath of Almighty God against sin, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross turned that sin away. Over the centuries, millions of times the Passover lambs were offered. According to Josephus, by the way, this is astounding. According to Josephus, several hundred thousand lambs were herded through the streets of Jerusalem every Passover. Yet not even the blood of all those animals could atone for sin. Think about that with me. Hundreds of thousands every year, year upon year, decade upon decade, century upon century, and none of those millions, even millions, could not atone for the sin of the world. In Hebrews we read this, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Well, if that's the case, then what do we need? We need a more efficacious sacrifice, an offering of more precious blood. What was needed was the blood of Jesus, our perfect Passover lamb. Jesus shed his blood for our sins. The New Testament is very specific about this. When it explains the, the meaning of the crucifixion, it constantly draws its attention to blood of Jesus. Now we have been justified by his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7. Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own blood, Hebrews 13.12. You were redeemed. With the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. Amen and amen to that, right? Oh, the blood of Jesus Christ is so precious. The reason that we talk about this blood is very simple. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The King James uses the word remission, doesn't it? There's no remission of sins. Therefore, in order to be saved from death, we need the blood of a perfect substitute to interpose between our sin and God's holiness. And the sign that we have a substitute is the blood of Christ. And so when we look at the cross, we see His payment for our sin. His payment the payment for our sin has been, been, has been made when we see the cross. And what does God see when he looks down at the cross? He sees that it's stained. It's stained with the blood of his very own firstborn. Have you ever thought about that? The word firstborn, you read this passage, 11 to 13, firstborn, firstborn, firstborn. I'm going to get to that after a while. But he, his own firstborn, 
God does not have a substitute to offer in place of his son. His son is the substitute. And when God sees the blood of his son, he says, it is enough. My justice has been satisfied. The price for sin has been fully paid and death will pass over you and you will be safe not just today, not just tomorrow, not just next year. You will be safe forever. Are you certain that you are safe forever? Have you trusted Christ? Have you trusted that Passover lamb and you are leaning into what he has done for you for your safe passage into eternity forever? Are you there? The blood of the cross has the power to say because it's the blood of Jesus who is the very Son of God. There's no more precious blood than this in all the universe. Unlike the blood of even the most perfect Passover lamb, it has infinite value. The only way to be saved from sin and delivered from death is by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. God calls everyone to trust His blood. And this is what the Israelites did, by the way, at the first Passover, didn't they? They trusted the blood. And, and remember how, how uh, James says, faith without works is dead? The faith that the Israelites had in that Passover lamb was displayed by their putting the blood on the lintels and on the door, doorposts and on the lintel. So will you trust the blood that Jesus shed on the cross? God has provided the lamb that takes away the sins of the world and everyone who trusts in his blood will be saved. What was the effect of the Passover? The effect of the Passover was immediate deliverance. Immediate deliverance. Look at, turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. Here it is. Notice this. They're, they're not, they're not going to go. They just want away with that God, don't they? We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel also had also done as Moses told them. For the, they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Everything that God said would happen has come true. God kept his promise. Look at verse, um, verse, well, yeah, look at the next verse. It says, that time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, n- notice that, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. This fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13. The time that the people of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted how long? 400 years. Now they were there 430, but remember, who went there before them? Joseph. And then there was a king, and they had favor all that time. Then a king arose who did not know Joseph, and so they afflicted Israel. 400 years of affliction and slavery, and just like that, they were delivered. Just like that, immediate. Look at Exodus 13 in, in verse number 3. Then Moses said to the people, something very important here, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Do this in remembrance of me is basically what he's saying, isn't it? Passover demonstrated what God had done in history to rescue his people from slavery, sin, and death. And at the same time, Passover feast pointed forward to the coming of Christ, didn't it? To its details set the pattern for salvation that God would accomplish through Christ's life and death. And so now I want to talk about chapter number 13 for just a little bit. I'm sorry, chapter number 12 for just a little bit. And let's turn to 12 and verse number 14. And we're going to talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we've got the Passover. And I'm going to give you the timeline in just a second. But we have the Passover. Now we have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. What is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? Verse number 14 of Exodus chapter 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. Verse number 18. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, what is going on? You notice there's two special features in these verses that we just read. The first one is, don't eat any kind of leaven. Yeast, leaven, right? And the second feature is, anybody who does during that seven-day time frame, what's going to happen to them? They're cut off. That means now they're outside the congregation. They have no hope. They have no hope. Once you're cut off, you have no hope. Why is that so important? Well, now turn to Exodus 13 and verse number 6. Exodus 13 and verse number 6. He says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand, 
and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to pause before I go to the next verse. What is this sign on your hands and between your eyes? Let me give it to you very simply. What they're doing and what they're thinking. That's very simple is what it means. The Jews took it literally and they bound things on their arms and they put phylacteries on their foreheads. That's not what that means at all. It's by what you're doing and by what you're thinking. Verse number 10, You shall therefore keep the statue at its appointed time from year to year, basically forever is what he says. Now what's going on? Let me describe the timeline. Okay, so you have um, the first of the month, and I'm not going to go into how they figured out the first day of the month. The first of the month, and then, um, and that's the new year, by the way, that's the Hebrew new year. Ten days into the Hebrew new year, they're to pick a Passover lamb. It had to be perfect. It had to be a yearling. They brought this lamb into their house for four days. Four days later, at twilight on the 14th, they sacrificed that lamb. They took the blood. They put it on the lentil, the doorposts and the lentils. And then they roasted and ate that lamb. And that very day, that night, they, they made sure that they had no leaven in their house. And they ate only unleavened bread starting that night until the seventh day, a week later. Seven days they did this. They ate no leavened bread. Now, the Old Testament doesn't really give the significance of the unleavened bread too much. It, it says, eat it in haste with your shoes on and everything so you can get out, make a clean break, right? But the New Testament gives us the significance of what's going on with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul looks back to the Passover and applies its significance to the life of the church. And this is where it comes in very applicable to us. Ready? He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may become a new lump as you really are unleavened. Did you catch that? You are unleavened. It doesn't say the bread. It says you are unleavened. For Christ, our perfect Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Let us therefore celebrate the festival, notice something, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, let me see if I can explain it, because this is so important that you understand what God expects out of us in salvation. Not that salvation is by works, but you'll see what I'm talking about. The first Passover constituted a new beginning of enormous proportions. And inevitably, that emphasis continued. Paul, picking up on that theme, summons Christians to make a decisive new beginning in Jesus Christ by putting away sin. Sin is described as malice and evil, instead put on righteousness. So here it is, the Israelites... They're to make a clean break from Egypt. They're to eat the Passover with sandals on, their bags packed, they're ready to go. Pharaoh kicks them out. They make a clean break from their slavery that night. And they're starting a whole new life. And so in order to symbolize the start of a whole new life, 
they are to eat unleavened bread. So you have salvation, deliverance from slavery, and because of that deliverance, you have a whole new life symbolized by the unleavened bread. And this seems to symbolize the order of the Christian life, doesn't it? It does. In the Passover lamb, there is redemption uh, from slavery to sin and salvation uh, from the this penalty of sin, right? And then in the unleavened bread, there is now a complete break from sin and a new responsibility to live a life of sanctification and righteousness. And so the order of the Christian life, and this is for everybody, the order of the Christian life is salvation, then sanctification. God may accept you as you are initially, but he expects change after that. And that change happens by the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? So there's salvation and there's sanctification. The proof that you are in Christ is that you live a sanctified life. That's the fruit. You put off sin and you put on Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Do you live a life putting off sin and putting on Jesus Christ? That's the significance, by the way, of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We drink, Jesus said, this cup of wine is the new covenant of my blood. Drink it. And he said, this bread is my body, which is broken. Eat, and it's unleavened bread, symbolizing the Christian life. Break from salvation from sin and the penalty of it and uh, sanctification in, in growing in righteousness I want you to finish one last verse. I, I had to go back to this. I actually wrote this in right before the service this morning. I want you to turn it so there's no slide is what I'm telling you. Turn to Exodus chapter 13 and verses 12 and 13. I want you to see one more thing that I have to mention. Exodus chapter 12. I miss the days of hearing the Bibles flip. So many people have their phones that's okay, by the way. I just like to hear the Bible pages, too. You shall set apart, verse number 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. That's important. The firstborn of all your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Every firstborn of the womb is the Lord's. It's given as an offering to Him. That's, the, that's of animals. Okay? But the firstborn of the womb of man is also the Lord's. But the firstborn of man has to be redeemed in the Old Testament here. And it's redeemed by a lamb or a goat, right? But God's firstborn, as I mentioned before, had no redeemer. He was the redeemer. He was the sacrifice. What God is saying to Israel is, everything is mine. And it's symbolized by giving of the firstborn. And because 
there is sin, then that firstborn must die. They got by that by sacrificing the Passover lamb and sacrificing lambs in the place of the firstborn child. God didn't have that. His son was the perfect Passover lamb. Because of that, we have salvation. Amen? What a powerful truth it is that Jesus came to redeem us from the penalty of sin. God's own firstborn. Isn't that powerful? It's so powerful to think. God did not spare his firstborn. And so the Lord called Israel to remember the day that they came out of Egypt with the Passover lamb and unleavened bread. And on that night, 1,500 years later, on that night, our perfect Passover lamb looked at his disciples and said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, the juice of the wine and the bread that we eat reminds us of that deliverance from sin accomplished by our Savior and our responsibility to put off sin and to put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why there's a language in 1 Corinthians about eating the bread unworthily. Let me ask you something as we close. Are you in Christ? Has his blood covered your sins? Has there been a, a time in your life, or are you currently trusting Christ to get you to heaven? You cannot make it to heaven on your own. You have to trust the blood of Christ, his offering on the cross. There's no other way whereby men shall be saved. Call on the name of the Lord, the Bible says, and you will be saved. God, Jesus, I am trusting what you did on the cross for me because I am not good enough to get to heaven on my own. I deserve hell. But your blood was shed for me, and that's my trust. And you know, God keeps his promises, and when he keeps his promises, there is going to be a change in your life. And that change is going to be the fruit, is what I like to call it, what the Bible calls it. The fruit is that you become more and more like Jesus Christ and you put off the old sins and you put on the righteousness of Christ. You can't have one without the other. If you have trusted Christ, then God said, He who began a perfect work or began a good work in you, will complete it, right? He's going to complete it. And so you may be sitting here saying, I trusted Christ. I prayed that prayer. But does your life reflect it? Does it? Because that's the fruit. That's what you need to ask yourself today. Does my life reflect someone who had the lambs, the blood of the Lamb of God placed on my life and the wrath of God is going to pass over me and I will spend eternity in heaven with Him. Lord, serious 
sobering subject today, but at the same time, a glorious